0: really want you to buy the book. Enough of you buy the book, I get the hair transplant I've always wanted. (laughs) Look, a lot of books. Yeah, but it's a lot of missing hair too. Anyway, I'll be signing this book outside. Uh, Bob's doing, uh, we wrote it together, Bob's doing the book launch over at uh, Trinity Church at the same time this morning. So that's kind of exciting. And you'll be seeing Facebook posts coming out and Blitzes in the media and all that kind of stuff in the next little while this morning Just for you because you're such good people The first book you buy is fourteen dollars. That's a big saving from amazon The second book you buy is twelve dollars an even bigger saving and every book thereafter is ten dollars Now I don't want to you know, I don't want to use christmas as some kind of sleazy marketing tool. But think about it. You can give them a pointless something or other that breaks in a week. The batteries run down and it's lifeless. Or you can give them a book that will change their life forever. (laughs) It's your choice. Whatever you think is best. So I'll be signing it. Oh, this is really funny. Uh, My first book, we saw... Um, on Amazon, somebody was selling my first book in Canada for $59. <laughs> I'm going to be rich. Well, it turned out it was a typo. They corrected it, It's like 59 cents or something like that. Anyway, you can get it signed, and I would love to sign it for you, so we'll be, we'll be selling books afterwards. Okay? You ready for the book of John? All right, let's, let's start. This is John 17, and as you're aware, 13, 14, 15, 16 have all led up to this chapter, and this is all one incident in the life of Jesus. This is one evening, a few short hours in Jesus' life, five chapters in the book of John dedicated to this one evening. No other uh, incident in the Bible has that kind of intense uh, uh, attention, and obviously, This is Jesus, in effect, a deathbed uh, thoughts. He knows he's going to die. He's sharing with his closest friends the things that matter most. And in 13, 14, 15, 16, he has shared a meal with them. He shared his deepest thoughts about the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that interesting that before he dies, the, the thing he wants to talk about the most is the Holy Spirit? Yeah, well, of course. Absolutely. The supernatural life is our birthright. The spirit-filled life is God's intention for us. Anything less than that is not really come out and say it. So he's talked about the Holy Spirit, and now he's going to pray for them. That's the last thing he's going to do. He's going to pray for them. And if this was your last night on earth, you'd be doing the same thing, gathering those that matter to you the most, Speaking your heart to them about what, what, what is most important to you. And, and if you're a believer, the end of the night you'd probably want to pray for them. And this is what he does. But he begins his prayer to the Father, not about his disciples, but about his own relationship with the Father. And that's where we're going to begin with uh, verse 17, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And this is what he says. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now, if that's where he stopped, that would be a sad prayer. Because that prayer would be all about him. Glorify me. Glorify me. And a lot of the times our prayers are somewhat like that. They're centered in ourselves. Take care of me. Solve my problems. Meet my need. But that's not what he says. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Do you see what's going on in this prayer? Jesus is saying, this is my time. Glorify me for the purpose that I might glorify you. This is a picture into the nature of the Trinity. They never seek None of the three, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, ever seeks glory for himself. Whatever glory comes to him, he turns around and points it to one of the other two. This is how, I've said this before, but let it sink in. This is how God can be humble. The creator of the universe is humble. How can the creator of the universe be humble? Because he is a relationship. He is three beings in love with one another. And whenever attention comes to one of them, they turn and say, Now, that's great, but, but look at him. And it goes on and on and on. It's a triangle of love. Love traveling from point to point to point on that triangle. I like to call it love in love with love. So what he's illustrating here is the relational nature of God. In the Trinity, love received must be love given. And when you think about love, Love that you take to yourself and you hoard and try to protect. Within a short time, it isn't love anymore. It seems to evaporate. But when love is given and transferred and goes from person to person to person, it doesn't actually get smaller. It actually gets bigger and more powerful. The very nature of love is that it has to continue moving. Love that you hoard. Think of it like a stream coming down off of a mountain. And as long as that water is moving, it's pure. But when you dam that stream and it backs up and all the sediment and all the other products intermingle with the water and it sits, we call it a swamp. It decays. Water to stay fresh must keep moving. And by the way, this is a, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. If we have a, a, an encounter with God and we're filled with His Holy Spirit and we sense His power and His love to us, one of the first impulses we have is to save it and keep it for ourselves. But if you'll turn around and take what God has just given you and you'll give it to somebody else, you'll lay hands on someone else, you'll begin taking an outward focus, what you find is not that you lose that power of the Holy Spirit, you actually end up getting more and someone else gets blessed. See, the, the Bible often calls the Holy Spirit water, a river. As long as He's flowing, we're all doing good. When we dam Him up, we create a swamp. Love, power, the Holy Spirit, all the same principle. It must be given once it's received. What exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a perfect relationship. It's a perfect family and I've said this to you many times, but I really want it to sink in. God doesn't value relationship. Like, oh, it would be good if we had good relationships. Good relationships make life go better. It's, you know, let, let's all be nice for the sake of being nice. God doesn't value relationship. God is a relationship. Three in one. That is His quintessential nature. That's how He can say He is love. That's how He can say He is humble. So Jesus in this first prayer to his Father, is reinforcing the relational nature of God. And give your an glory, glory to, to me so, so that I can see it what it an right example now. it is as this prayer unfolds. But he goes further than that. He says in verse 3, Now this... Well, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to ask you a question. Before we go to the answer, let me ask you a question. How many times have you talked about heaven with a friend? How many times have you talked about eternal life with a friend? the brother or sister. And what are they how do we usually define eternal life? Heaven. And when we talk about heaven, I'm going to I'm going to be uh, transparent here. This is a my indication of failure and then you can share your indication of failure. When I think about heaven, I think about the food. I see a buffet table stretching into infinity. And every people group on the earth, has their ethnic food at that table. It's the best they can produce. And we just graze for eternity down that buffet table. And there are, no, there are no calories. There is no cholesterol. There is nothing bad. And you never feel too full. You just keep on eating forever. Now, if that's not heaven, what is heaven? I take that too. Or some people say, you know, well, you know, heavens, the streets are paved with gold. Or heaven is, is all this beauty and architecture. And I mean, we, we see paintings of heaven and we see these ideals of heaven. We talk about heaven. as And eternal life is heaven to us. That is completely misleading. Jesus defines heaven for us in this text. And we ought to really ponder it. He says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Do you see the relational nature here? God is a relationship, and heaven is not a place. It's not principally defined in spatial terms. It's not a destination. It's a relationship. The only thing that makes it eternal life is that we're eternally with Him. He's heaven. He's the reward. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What makes it heaven is we will be with him. You know that song came out a couple years ago? Heaven is here now. He's all around us. Just love that personification of heaven as Jesus. Heaven is a relationship. And it starts now. An unending, an, an obscured relationship with God. Eternal life is only wonderful because it is a life forever in the presence of God. Eternal life in the absence of the presence of God is hell. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever think about that? Eternity in the presence of God is heaven. Eternity, in the absence of the presence of God, is hell. Eternal life is not good unless it's with God. Now he's prayed to his father. He's reinforced that relational connection between them. He's redefined for us in true terms what heaven really is. And now he turns his attention to praying for his disciples. And he says this in verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer... But they're still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Father. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. Now, whenever Jesus speaks of the name of Jesus and the New New Testament writers speak of the name of Jesus, like, uh, in what name did you do this healing? By what name were you healed? If you take out the word name and you put in the word authority, you'll find that those passages tend to make even more sense. By what authority did you do this miracle? By what authority were you healed? So Jesus says, I I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your authority. The authority that you gave me. So he's now going to pray for protection for his friends. So, have you ever prayed for protection for your friends? Every day. It's a common thing that we pray for protection for our friends. What are the things we pray for for protection for our friends and family, those that we love? Protection from evil. Guys. In particular, what kind car of car accidents? Protect them from calamity. How about this? Sickness. Protect them from sickness. How about this? Protect them from violence. How about this? Protect them from poverty. Right? Haven't we prayed these things? Don't we pray these things all the time? Aren't, Aren't these things the substance of our prayer to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit? Most of the time, isn't that how we pray for protection from evil? Any hands. This is how we pray. This isn't even close to how Jesus prays. And this is interesting. He doesn't pray against sickness, violence, poverty, fear, depression, calamity. He prays for only one thing. He prays against disunity. Protect them by the power of your name that they may be one. Guys, isn't that interesting? Jesus' biggest concern for His friends sitting there at the table with Him is that when He's gone, He won't be holding them together anymore. He's gone. And He's praying protection from the Father that they will remain in love with one another, that they will remain in a state of unity. And He's saying, protect them from evil that they might be one. What is this giving us a clue about regarding the agenda of the evil one? If Jesus is spending time praying to the Father that we will be protected from evil, and He is praying principally for our unity and against disunity, what does this tell us about the agenda and the purposes of the enemy? Because number one... His number one weapon against us is disunity. It's not all those bad things that happen to us. It's how we respond to those bad things that happen to us with one another, whether we stay together or whether we scatter. Do we continue to love in crisis? That's what he's praying for. That they may be one. What does Jesus know that we don't know? Why is unity so incredibly important to Him? Well, two reasons. And the text indicates the first. Verse 13. He says this, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. You know, there's times when we think, Gosh, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. It's inconvenient for me. Gosh, I wish Jesus hadn't point, pointed out that failure in my life. Oh, gosh, that, that's, that, that's, that's kind of insensitive on his behalf. I, I wonder why he did that. Everything that he says to us is for our joy. I've said these things to you now so that you will have my joy. Don't ever question his motive. Even when he's giving you a hard word, something that's not easy to accept, his motive is really simple. I want you to have more joy. I wouldn't bring this thing up except that it's getting in the way of your joy. It's getting in the way of you experiencing my joy. It's his joy he's trying to give us. Not human joy. His joy. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. And here's what he knows. He knows that the full measure of his joy cannot be experienced until we are in unity. Our happiness is bound up with our love for one another. Our happiness is bound up in our unity with one another. And we lose sight of that because the enemy is trying to talk us out of that truth all the time. You would be happier if you left this marriage. You would be happier if you walked away from your annoying brother. You would be happier if you left this church. You would be happier if you dumped these inconvenient friends. You would be happier. That's the enemy's lie. But complete joy requires complete love. And complete love requires complete unity. Is this making sense? Because how can we experience the joy of God, which is a relational joy, three in one? How can we experience that relational joy if we're not in relationship? All unity is is a state that exists in a community when love for one another triumphs over our human differences. Unity is communal love. That's the first thing he knows why he's praying against disunity from the evil one. And the second thing that he knows is that disunity is Satan's principal weapon against us. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. How often do you pray, God, get me out of here. God, get get me out of God, get me out of this mess. And Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for you to take them out of the world, Father. I'm praying for you to protect their unity in the middle of their trouble. We're busy praying, get me out of here. And Jesus is busy praying, help them to hold together in this crisis. Because he knows disunity is the only weapon Satan really has against us. Jesus doesn't pray, get them out of here. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, well... I don't like very much that he's praying for our unity. I'd like it a lot more if he was praying against all the bad things in the world that can happen to me. And so let's just dismiss this prayer as a first century prayer for his buddies in the room at that time. Let's just say that was for them. It's not really for us. We're different. We're more sophisticated now. And we have much harder time living than those guys do. I mean, we've got traffic to deal with. And all those other sufferings that come with our present age. Our issues are different. Disunity is not a problem for us now. <laughs> Our biggest problems are sickness, violence, poverty, and bad traffic, and just inconvenience, basically. Well, we don't get off the hook on that one either. This is what Jesus says about that. My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, this is a radical shift. Jesus has been praying for his his friends, his closest friends in that room. He's been praying for them, and then all of a sudden, he says the most unusual thing. Well, my prayer's not for them alone, Father. I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Us. Every Christian who's lived since that time for 2,000 years, has been the focus and subject of this particular prayer. And it stretches for 2,000 years through our history into this room today for us. And it doesn't stop here. It goes on tomorrow and tomorrow after tomorrow and until the day that he ends history and returns for us. This is his prayer for us. And what does he pray? No surprise that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is the only recorded prayer of Jesus that stretches into the future for us. And He only prays for one thing. He prays for our unity. But He's not just praying for some kind of human togetherness he's praying for something far more profound that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you now this is crazy there is this overwhelmingly powerful completely pure perfect love that exists between the father and jesus and the holy spirit It is divine. It is supernatural. It is inexplicably wonderful. It's eternal. It has always been. It will always be. It is the generating force. The sun pouring out life and warmth to us is nothing compared to the power of the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is the most selfless, pure, perfect love that exists. And he says that all of them might be one Father just as you are in me and I am in. People, we just got welcomed into the Godhead. We just got included into the best, most perfect love from which all life and all goodness and all truth and all beauty from. Jesus is actual, listen, He's actually telling us that it is possible for us to experience the same love and unity for one another that he and the Father and the Spirit share for one another. Now can you see why he said, I'm telling you this so your joy might be complete and you'll have my joy? He is welcoming us into that triangle of love, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And every time another person becomes a Christian, another point is added to the triangle. And the first Christian, after the three of them, it was a square. And then it was a pentagon. And then it was an octagon. And then it was a dectagon. And pretty soon, it's so many dots in this circle of love that it's a circle of love. And the love just keeps going around it and around it and around it. And because it's a circle, you can continually add more points. And as you add more points, it doesn't change the nature of the circle. It just makes it bigger. And because His love is infinite, He has always room for one more in the circle. There's always room for one more at the table where we're going to eat in eternity at the great feast. And He is waiting until He can get them all. I know it's a food reference. I can't help it. It's who I am. But... It's not a buffet table like this. It's a round buffet table. We're all holding hands and eating together. And it never stops. Oh, Lord, I can't wait. That's why gluttony is a sin, people. And end up worshiping food, Phil. We're welcomed into the very nature of the love that they have for one another. Heaven on earth, people. The more we live that love for one another, the more we have that divine love flowing between us, the more we experience the very nature of God. We become an illustration of the very nature of God in our relationships. And we're experiencing who He really is, because we're sharing in His love. And the more of it we welcome into our lives and release, the more of it comes to us because love has to flow. And He just keeps pouring it out as we keep giving it. And slowly, we become an outpost of heavenly love. But here's the other reason. This is the effect now of us living this kind of love together. May they also be in us. He's talking about that they'll be in you and me, Father, the way we are. And he goes on and says, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then... Then, as our unity increases, there is an effect in the world. Then, as our unity increases, there is an effect in the world. And what is that effect? Then the world will know that you, Father, sent me, Jesus, and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is absurd. What he's doing here is he is attaching his credibility in the world to accomplish his mission to save the world, he is attaching that to the quality of our love for one another. What a risk. Would you do that? Would you say the world's going to know Jesus because they see how wonderful we are with one another? Would you take that chance? He takes that chance. that's why he's praying against dis- disunity that's why it matters so much that's why he defines heaven as a relationship because the more we show what we're, the we the more we show the love of god in our relationships the more we reveal is this god? making sense when we leave this room, our goal should not be a carefree life. It should not be a life without trouble. It should not be a life of being protected from all these bad things in the world. We should go out saying, more than anything else in my life, I want to be united to my brothers and sisters because it reflects the very nature of God and I get to experience the nature of God. Our entire focus for our Christian life should change as a result of listening to this prayer. Get it? You have fulfilled your purpose if you've loved the next person standing in front of you. Years ago, I was bothered by the phrase, you will do greater things than I have done. And I looked at our church and I looked at my life and I looked at everything and I said, I don't see the greater works, Lord. I don't see the greater works. I was I can remember the moment I was driving from a retreat center back to my house. and There was raining and the rain was coming down the windshield. And I said, Lord, I don't see the greater works. And he spoke to me and he said, that's because my prayer hasn't been fulfilled. I said, what? What prayer? He said that they might be one. He said, when you, when you experience my unity and you love each other like that, you will see power come. It's true. Because all power is is a practical expression of love. Power is when love reach, reach, reaches the physical realm. Healing is when love reaches the physical realm of a person's body. That's all it is. We're so enamored with power, we separate it from understanding that it is nothing but an expression of love. And where love comes, power comes. Where unity comes, love comes, and power follows. Love is the thing. Unity in our church is the thing that the Holy Spirit smells at a distance and says, That's wonderful. What is that? That smells like Jesus. That smells like the Father. I want to go and be with that. I'm going there. I'm going where I can smell the love and the unity in the room. I want to stay there. I'm not just going to visit. I'm going to habituate. I'm going to be here habitually. I'm going to habitate. I'm going to live here now. Because this is my nature. I am smelling and I really, really like it a lot. We don't have to pray for power. Just pray for more love. Power will come when the love comes. The more love, the more power. You know, I never would have connected, if it was my choice, I would not connect his credibility with the world, with how we love, but he did. He must have a great confidence in the power of his love flowing through us. And he does have a great confidence in the love of the Father. And he ends the prayer with these words. And I've made you known to them, Father, and I'm going to continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself might be in them. His confidence that we can love like he loves is that he lives in us and he's made the Father's love known to each of us. And he does this by his spirit that lives within us. A wild, extravagant, ridiculous, supernaturally powerful love is living inside each one of us. All we have to do is cooperate with it and let it come out. And it comes out when we join the prayer of Jesus and we begin begin praying for unity even more than we pray, get me out of here. And when we understand that disunity is our greatest enemy, we will pray against it more than we pray for deliverance from our temporary difficulties and trials. Okay? The Lord just popped an application into my mind. So let's just end with this application. Let's close our eyes. And it's just a practical way to start... with God's love. He showed me that most of our disunity comes uh, as a result of offense and the result of offense is a failure to forgive. That's where much of our disunity comes from. And I think he just said Let's apply this message by forgiving someone we need to forgive. I'm making a choice to forgive right now. The Holy Spirit, I ask you to reveal to each one of us someone we've not forgiven, some offense that we've been holding on to, and it is blocking our experience of your love. The Lord says, You want more of my joy. Release more of my forgiveness. The Holy Spirit, who do I have to forgive and release from this so that I can experience more of your love and give more of your love? Holy Spirit, I pray you reveal to us right now who that person is. Someone come to mind, did you see a face or hear a name? See a person in your mind's eye? Let's make a choice to forgive right now. Let's just release it. Let's just release love to that person right now.